All right. It may be a little odd to be doing Acts with you in Advent. I actually think, as uh, I trust you'll see by the end, that this passage fits very well with the idea of Advent and what we are thinking about. So if you can, uh, I'm going to cover a lot of scripture. So if you have a Bible with you and could flip to Acts 23, that would be fantastic. So we are in the home stretch in Acts. I know I've said that before, but it is true. If you've been paying attention to our, our story in Acts, and call it family history, because I think it's a way to reflect on the early church and lessons we can learn from the early church, you've maybe noticed that Paul's uh, trajectory has begun to mirror Christ's in some very specific ways. While Jesus' ministry led to this dramatic confrontation in Jerusalem, Paul's has done the same. And in both situations, the greatest political force in the world at the time, the Roman Empire, and a deeply influential religious force, uh, Jerusalem, kind of bring their force against one person. Now, when we last left Paul, he had made his defense to his own Jewish community in Jerusalem about Christ, and the, the results had been a mixed, a mixed bag. While some obviously agree and think Paul is correct and follow after him and the church in Jerusalem is very strong, that... Uh, what he is preaching about Jesus is not against Judaism, but its fulfillment, but a continuation of it. Uh, many also become violently antagonistic to Paul and his ideas. This is not specific to Jerusalem. He has experienced this violent antagonism all over everywhere he's gone. He's seen this rift. Some rejoice at the good news Paul is giving, and some are intimidated by it. Well, when we join Paul today, he's found himself in prison, as he is wont to do, and a plot has reached uh, his ears, a plot to have him killed. Uh, Forty men have sworn, they've come together and said, we bound ourselves by an oath that we will neither eat nor drink till we have killed Paul. They make a plan to do this. They set up kind of an elaborate trap. But word of the plot makes it to Paul's nephew who gives the warning. Paul warns the tribune in, his, in charge of his care and that's where we get our passage today, which is going to set up a much larger passage we're going to tackle. So let's look at Acts 23, starting in verse 23. Then he, this is uh, the tribune, called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far, to, far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Brief word about this letter. This letter makes uh, this tribune look much better than the actual events. So he's doing some editorializing here. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. He leaves out that he also beat Paul himself, but there he goes having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. 
On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So we're going to look through quite a bit of passage today. This sets in motion a lot of trials that Paul's go, Paul's go, Paul goes through. I've picked one of these. There's basically two big trials, and I think this one is fairly representative. So we're going to, we're going to look at this one and draw some application for all this. Paul's about to be sent through quite the bureaucratic mess, but all for the kingdom of Christ. And I think as we go through this, we will see the value of what is happening on Advent. Paul is equipped in a different way than you might expect for this scenario. So let's pray that God would open up this word to us and that we would hear what he has for us. Jesus, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are with us. You open hearts to hear. You speak. Help us to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, last year, I was at the airport really early in the morning. I think this was LaGuardia. It was one of those, uh, I had a flight that was getting out at 6, and so I had to be there really early. And you know that moment where you get to the airport, and you walk in, and you're like, you're there at 4.30 in the morning or something, you're like, surely I'm the only person in the whole airport. And you turn the corner, and there's a line like a mile long. Uh, So it was that moment, and everybody's in line, and nobody is awake, and everybody's grumpy. The security's line is very long, and nobody's really sure if they'll make it through in time. Well, about this point, uh, these two young men walk up. Uh, see the line and begin cursing and expressing deep frustration very loudly. And this isn't, wasn't just like, well, this is bad. There was kind of a tone of, how dare this happen to us? And so in front of God and everybody, they just stepped right in the front of the, like, right up at the front of the line. Well, maybe in the South, maybe in the Midwest, you could get away with this, but this is New York. And uh, people begin yelling out for security, you know, and... uh, Sure enough, eventually security comes over. There's one thing about this uh, poor security person. Firstly, they had clearly on the end of a really long shift. Uh, Secondly, the security person was much shorter than these two men. And the security person comes up to them like, did you break in line? They're like, no, we've been in here the whole time. And everyone's around them like, you are lying. You know, we're, and the security person just doesn't, clearly decides, whatever, this is not worth it, and walks away. So, yeah, you could feel the burn. All right, so <laughs> the guys stay in line. They go through. In, uh, well, I get on the flight. I have two seats, empty seats next to me. And, of course, <laughs> the two guys get on. They sit right beside me. And the first one goes, dude, I didn't think we'd make it. And the other one's like, I told you, man, chill. And right as we're settling in, the flight's about to take off. One of the guys reaches in and pulls out a book to read, and the title of the book is How to Become a Great Leader. And I just about almost started laughing just right there. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Um, Now, I I don't remember the exact title, but very clearly it was a self-help book about being like a virtuous great leader. And like, now to uh, to be charitable, maybe this guy had not gotten to the chapter on not skipping in line and lying to security. Maybe that's chapter eight and he's on chapter six. But of course, what was funny is the, the gentleman's ultimate desired goal to be what I assume would be a virtuous and good leader was not matching at all with the display, that, you know, his process. Somehow the fact that he wanted to be a great leader clearly didn't have anything to do with the last 40 minutes of his life. You know, they were, they were totally separate. I think uh, as Christians, we could be tempted to do the same thing. 
if I could stretch this a little bit, we can blast through the metaphorical airport however we'd like, get on the plane and take out the Bible, you know. When we're doing these things, we often say like, well, this is just how the world works. I'm sorry this is how it is, but this is how you have to survive. In other words, to be a citizen here, you have to do some things that aren't so good, but you just got to do it. Well, in today's passage, we see that being a heavenly citizen actually affects right now and how we live. And this isn't just a, okay, guys, time to be better and stand in line kind of way. The gospel allows us to live differently because it strips authorities of their power, and I'll break this down, and equips us with the Spirit's power. And these are two lessons Paul has internalized, and I want to look through how this plays out. So let's start with these powerful authorities. So Paul, he's being held captive. He's about to come before this trial. And on the one hand, we have the Romans, and they probably don't need much of an introduction. They're a political and organizational force, the likes of which the world's never seen. Technological, architectural advances that still affect us today. They've also developed a rigorous court system. Being a citizen of Rome matters very deeply, and they have more power than you can believe. They are the peak of civilizational acumen at this point. And on the other hand, we have Paul's own Jerusalem represented, the, the home to incredible tradition and religion. And uh, Tom Holland, in a recent book, made a great argument that basically human rights start with the Jewish scriptures. So much of the religious world owes a debt to Jewish scriptures and practice. And it's Paul's own. But there's obvious tension between these two forces. Rome is occupying Jerusalem. So we have this delicate balance between this political force and this religious force, and into this mess walks Paul, this guy who has this strange rabbi that he claims died and was resurrected. He's a prisoner of Rome. He's wanted in Jerusalem. He's a pawn in a political conflict way above his pay grade. The only thing left to happen to Paul is for him to get steamrolled. That's the inevitable conclusion of this experience. But what we see is something a little different. And let's start with this case. So the case comes before Felix, who is the governor of Judea, and let's look at together at Acts 24, starting in verse 1. So first we get the case against Paul. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, so he's beginning, he's going to begin by praising Felix, the, the governor. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, there's some interesting things about this opening to the, the case here. Tertullus's opening lines sound very pleasant, unless you actually know anything about Felix. So... When he starts with this elaborate, since through you we enjoy peace, and by your foresight, reforms are being made in every way and everywhere except with all gratitude, Felix does not deserve this kind of praise. 
he's a wild character in history, and he shows up in other historians' works, not just in the scriptures. Uh, he comes from a lower rung of his society. He's actually a freed slave. And working his way up, incredibly, he's appointed eventually by the Emperor Claudius to be governor. At some point during this, he meets uh, Drusilla, who's a Jewish woman and the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. There are lots of King Herods in the New Testament. They're basically always bad. Drusilla was famously beautiful. The only issue, she was married to somebody else. But uh, that wouldn't stop someone like Felix. Felix, using an elaborate plot, there's some interesting details. I'm not going to go into them. He manages to convince Drusilla to, to leave her husband and marry him. And this is done very publicly. And Drusilla, being a daughter of a Jewish king, this is kind of a scandal. So when we get to Felix, he was, by any worldly measure, outrageously successful. He's a governor of, appointed by the emperor. He's come from being a slave, and now he's a governor appointed by an emperor. He's married a beautiful royal woman. He's, he's got everything he needs, but there's trouble brewing for Felix. Because as one historian, the historian Tacitus says, Felix wields his power with a desperate insecurity, like someone with something to prove. I don't want to over-psychologize him, but it'd be easy to imagine that memories of his past, his financial insecurity, the fact that for so many years he's just answering yes to people ordering him around had led to insecurity in his rule. He was famously violent. His put-downs of the Jewish people and Jewish rebellions were famous, vicious, and he was deeply hated. And in fact, he obviously doesn't know this yet, his responses are so violent that before even 10 years in this position, he's recalled due to his failures as governor. So when Tertullus comes and says these elaborate praise, he does not believe them. He hates, there's no way he doesn't hate Felix and everything he represents. He's playing the political game. He needs Felix to come through, and he starts by flattering him. How many meaningless entreaties do you think Felix heard in his time in power? How many lines like this about how great and gracious he was? The whole time, both parties knowing this is untrue. So after praising him, and we'll come back to that, Tertullus turns to this critique. Paul's offended, both of us. And he's offended religion by profaning the temple, but, and he makes sure to put this in, he also, he's a guy who stirs up riots, and we know how much you hate those. And in fact, what Tertullus is counting on is he's like, this is the bloodthirsty Felix. He's famous for putting down riots with incredible brutality, and here I am saying, and you know, this guy profaned our religion, but also riots. And he's hoping that Felix will deal with Paul in the exact same way he has dealt with everything else. Now, essentially, everything in this accusation is false. Tertullus hates Felix. He knows the truth that Paul did not profane the temple. We talked about that last time I was here, that he actually submitted himself to, to rites and rituals that he no longer even fully believed were necessary. So he would not offend the temple. So why? Why is Tertullus so against Paul? Well, Paul is a threat and he's actually a threat to both people in this room. Because he's saying that these two authorities no longer have power. That there is a true king who does. If Paul is right that Christ came to forgive enemies, 
and offer fellowship in the world to the world, then Tertullus is going to have to draw his lines a little differently. For Tertullus, the lines are good guy, bad guy, and it's Jerusalem versus the world. And what Paul's message is saying is that it's always been the world versus God. And Christ has come and offered peace. That is a good message, but it requires admitting that we were enemies of God, that we need his grace and his mercy. That requires some humility to say it. The other thing is it means accepting that the gospel goes out to everyone. It's not just for one group of people, it is for all. All people now have access to this God. As we sing, without money, come and buy. This is a scary new world that would decentralize power, religious power, completely. And you could see how Paul would be seen as a threat. Now, this idea is not difficult for Tartellus in Jerusalem alone. This is difficult for everyone everywhere. I, 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 st I still think the most offensive thing in the gospel, outside of all the typical hot-button issues, I think the most offensive thing to the gospel is that we are all equally lost apart from God. Jesus tells a parable about that, about people who go and work out in the field, and some start in the morning and some start in the evening, but at the end they get the same wages. And people are furious. How come? And he's like, it's all grace. It's all mercy. I think, honestly, in our heart of hearts, that's the thing that bothers us the most about, some of us the most about Christianity. It is free. You cannot earn it. And that requires some humility to accept. Well, the other thing that I think maybe bothers, but the thing that gives Paul so much power here is he knows that the gospel goes forth by weakness. It doesn't go forth through strength. It doesn't go forth through intimidation. It goes forth through weakness. It goes forth through this dying savior who is resurrected. There's this famous scene from a movie. Uh, if, if you're a Christian educator, you've probably been sent this scene. Uh, there's a movie called A Man for All Seasons. It's from 1966. Um, and it documents Sir Thomas More, who stands up to King Henry VIII over his many uh, divorces. Uh, it's, I'm not getting into that at all. But this scene needs little in the way of introduction. But Sir, Sir Thomas More is this, is this religious authority, and he has some power in the courts, but he's a good guy, and in his heart, he's attempting to do the right things. This scene in this movie, he's, he's coming back from a, a trip to talk politics with the highest authorities. He comes back to his seminary. He pulls up in a little boat, and a pupil of his is sitting on the shore. And he gets out of the boat and walks over. And we have the pupil, we have this scene. Uh, Sir Thomas More sees the pupil and is like, have you been here all night? The pupil's like, yes. You said that there might be a post for me, like a position. Any word on that? And Sir Moore says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll offer you a, uh, a post with a house, a servant, 50 pounds a year. And he's like, great, what post? He's like, well, you'll, uh, you'll be a teacher at the new school. Immediate crestfallen. The pupil is upset. A teacher? And Moore says, Richard, no one's going to give you a place at court. And the pupil says, well, Master Cromwell said he would do something for me. And Moore says, Cromwell? Well, if you know Cromwell, you don't need my help. And he's walking away. He says, Sir Thomas, if only you knew how much I'd rather have your help than his. And Sir Thomas Moore goes, turns around and says, you, you cannot have a place at court. He says, why? Sir Thomas Moore reaches in his vest and pulls out this elaborate silver, pure silver candlestick. And he's like, look at this. You know what this is? He's like, this is called a bribe. He's like, I was given this yesterday by Sir Alexander Macon. 
He's like, he has a trial going on in court and hopes this would sway my opinion. He's like, uh, do you want it? No joke, I'm, I'm offering it to you right now. It's handmade, it's Italian silver, do you want it? And the pupil looks at it and he's like, yeah, thank you, and takes it from him. So Thomas Morgan says, well, what will you do with it? Well, I'll sell it. Great, what will, you, what will you buy with that? He's like, you know, some decent clothes. Sir Thomas More laughs and says, Richard, that's a little bribe. At court, they'll offer you all sorts of things. They'll offer you homes and manor houses and coats of arms. A man should go where he won't be tempted. Why not be a teacher? You'll be a fine teacher, maybe a great one. And the pupil says, if I was, who would know it? And Thomas More says, you? your pupils, your friends, God. Not a bad public, that. You see what's happening in this scene is the pupil is begging to enter the halls of worldly power. He wants to be recognized by people that matter. But Sir Thomas More is offering him something much greater. The difference between them is that for the pupil, the bribe has so much power over him, but Sir Thomas More in Christ has everything he needs, the bribe means nothing. It has no power over him. So who is more powerful, More might say? The one who enters before the religious and political authorities trembling because the religious and political authorities have everything that you could want, or the one who stands before them unmoved because they have nothing to offer? When you follow Christ, something crazy begins to happen. It's not that you want all the same things the authorities want, you just have to deny yourself more. At some point, Christ begins to actually change desires so that you want something totally different. And when that happens, the authorities lose all power. That's what's happening here with Tertullus. He still has those things hold sway, and they don't for Paul. The irony for Tertullus, of course, is that in the end, if we go to Revelation, new heavens, new earth, everything's together. It's called New Jerusalem. Jerusalem has the seat of honor. There's so much honor from God there. And as Paul, who's a fellow Israelite, puts it, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. If Tertullus had eyes to see and ears to hear, in other words... He would say that he's in such a position of honor because of what Christ has done for him. And not only that, but Christ has done even more than he realizes. Tertullus hates the Romans. He hates Felix. He wants him gone. For Paul, he doesn't give the Romans a second thought. They have no power over him. For Paul, Christ has defeated death. Who are the Romans? This is true for you too, Christian. We don't go through the airport with the same fears and anger and then pull out the Bible. The story of Christ has changed our whole relationship with everything. The authorities, culture, the appeal to power, none of that holds any sway over us. There is one true power, and we serve him, and, we, and he loves us. Not a bad public, that. So we can see that the authorities, because of what Christ has done by, by coming, dying, being resurrected, Defeating death. He's stripped those things that terrify us of their power. The second thing, though, is we're equipped with the Spirit's power to grow into this. And we can immediately see how these realities affect Paul right away. Paul, who's no longer afraid. Rome's not his great enemy. Rome is not the unavoidable obstacle. Rome is just another pretender that will fade. 
There's one true kingdom, it's God's, Paul's in it. So let's look just right away, look at 24.10. Paul knows the truth about Felix, and it's kind of hilarious to put his opening here. Paul says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. <laughs> All right, zero praise in there, and everyone would have caught wind of what he's saying. He's like, since you're the guy I have to talk to, I'll talk to you now. That's essentially what he's saying. Uh, I imagine there were some chuckles in the crowd as he said that. Now, when Paul launches into his defense, which we'll read in a minute, he has three goals. He wants people to see that Christianity is not responsible for stirring up political unrest. He wants to show that Christianity is, is the fulfillment of Judaism. It is not against it. And he wants to get an opportunity, actually, to present the gospel to the people in this room. He is not just here for his own survival. He is actively here to talk to people about Christ and the true king. So let's look at his defense starting in, uh, we'll, go, we'll start over, we'll start back in 10. Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. He makes his defense. And here's the result. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, we're going to get into this, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. All right, so what's going on here? Well, on the one hand, Felix really knows that dealing harshly with Paul might actually earn him some political points. He's not in a good place, and if people want Paul dead and he could do that thing, it could earn him some credibility. But on the other hand, he also knows that Paul is innocent. There's nothing here to punish him over, that he's a Roman citizen deserving a very fair trial and judgment. And in this no-win situation, Felix does what every great politician might do. He says, let's sit on this one, and then sits on it for two years. Now, it's interesting that we get this postscript, and I want to end thinking about this. Look in 24. After some days, Felix, so this powerful, desperately insecure Roman governor, Felix, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, 
and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, this is a bizarre little ending to this story. And what exactly is going on here? Well, firstly, remember, this is Drusilla, the woman who left her husband for Felix, a daughter of one of the Herods, very powerful. And it's possible Felix knows a thing or two about Judaism. He's learned. And something about Paul, maybe even that opening when Paul did not give the elaborate uh, treaty, something about the way Paul was speaking gets his attention and he brings him back. And notice what Paul, it says that Paul does here. This is interesting. Paul talks about his faith in Christ Jesus, and in 25, it says he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now, Luke's not just writing, Paul came and spoke about religious word, religious word, religious word. These are very specifically chosen. Paul knows who he is talking to. He's talking to someone who has struggled with his own righteousness, who's struggled with his own security. Am I good enough? I'm governor. I have the most beautiful, powerful wife, am I good enough? He has struggled with self-control. He has viciously punished those around him. And Paul is saying, there is a coming judgment. This scenario is flipped. You think that I am on trial. You are on trial right now. Paul is saying these things very intentionally. And what, what I think is great about what Paul says, it doesn't say he proclaimed it or yells it at him. It says he reasoned. There's something about the way Paul is speaking with him that is giving him an opportunity to say things that cut very deep to the core of who Felix is. And for a brief moment, there's a crack in the armor and it says Felix was alarmed. Felix was alarmed. So what Paul is saying, he's saying there's this true trial coming when God will righteously judge the earth and nothing will be hidden and all these things you are desperately reaching for for security will not do it. There is only one person who gives us security, that is Christ. And Felix, who has seen the lowest of lows and the highest of highs and knows that it's not enough, for a second contemplates that maybe Paul is right. And I think in this brief moment, he has a real chance to repent and turn. He can quit his poor self-rule and hand it over to Christ but he does not take it. And he brings Paul back for two years having this conversation with him. Why? Because despite all that Felix has and all the power and all the significance, he still believes the old ways are the best. He's holding out for money. He hopes that Paul will offer him a bribe. Here is Paul offering him the greatest wealth in the world, Christ is yours, and he is waiting, holding out for a little more coin, for rubbish. Uh, I have an old uh, teacher friend from another school, and he's retired now, and he was a little more old school, and I have a lot of great stories about him. Uh, email was a bad invention uh, for him because... <laughs> One thing he was maybe not so good at is parent interactions. Uh, and it got to the point where I knew that administration made him, apparently you're getting all teacher stories today. Uh, administration, if he sent any email to a parent, he had to send it to administrators first so they could read it and give the go ahead. Well, at one point he had this parent who just relentlessly wanted to give, wanted to argue their, their kid to get an A. 
And <laughs> the email that administration rejected from my friend, uh, he sent an email, he wanted to send an email, it just said, oh, you want an A? Here it is, give him an A. I'll write 100 in the gradebook right now. Are we good? Can we do school now? It was a great little point because essentially what he was saying is, I don't care. <laughs> like, you want this so badly, here it is. Can we do the real thing now? Like, I'm actually trying to form character and cultivate virtues and loves and discipline and all of this. And the grade is like a part of it, sure, but it's the least important part compared to everything else that I'm doing. And if you want it so badly, can I just give it to you so we can move on and do the other thing? I wish they had let him send that email. Anyway. Well, there's a warning here in this passage, okay? And there's an encouragement. The warning is to avoid the fate of Felix. For Felix, who's like begging for the A and a wealth of actual chances to grow, for Felix, his conscience is pricked. He has a little understanding of the Christian story, but he won't let go of the old ways of power. He thinks he knows how you get security, and he can't let it go. He can't let them go to follow Christ. There's a difference between being intrigued by Christianity and being a disciple. And the warning is for us, don't be Felix. Don't show up for two years like intrigued. The value is in discipleship. There is wealth before you that you cannot imagine. Union with Christ. The encouragement on the flip side is this. Felix is the governor and Paul is the prisoner. And which one of them is in a more secure position? It's Paul. Between the two of them, one has true security. The kind of security that allows him to stand up in front of somebody like Felix <laughs> and not play the game. This is true of the Christian as well. Can you imagine the two years from Paul's perspective? Okay, I'm, I'm going to do, I suspect Paul was an extroverted kind of guy. I could be wrong. But what we've read through Acts so far, he's been bouncing from town to town. It's been all excitement. Okay, miracles, he gets beat up pretty often, but miracles, he gets beat up. He's speaking in big arenas. He's saying big things. This is, this is like high-octane act, action stuff. And then suddenly, er, breaks are shut down, and for two years, he's stuck in prison. The breaks are slammed. You go, oh, my gosh, what a waste of his gifts, right? At this pivotal moment for the church, Paul's just stuck here. But you know what Paul says in one of his letters? He actually, it's a famous line, but let me contextualize it. He says that famous line, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We usually think about it in this way. We think, I can accomplish greatness through Christ. But what Paul is saying is a little different. Listen to what he said leading up to that. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. Sounds like Felix, doesn't it? I know how to be brought low and I know how to bound. Felix did not. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The interesting thing is that line, learned. This didn't come naturally to Paul. It was probably hard. But he learned the truth of the kingdom. Whether God has success or failure, extroverted action or introverted solitude in store for him, he can do all things through Christ. He has the delight of the Father, and there's no greater security. Christian, this is for you as well. In Christ, you have all you need. 
We don't want the same things, and so we don't fear the same things. There's more security in Christ than in all the money and power and prestige in the world. And that's the good news, because we've been trying money and power and prestige for as long as we've been around, and it's never worked. It fails every person. But Advent says that there is another way, and there is a true king who does not fail. In Acts 26, you don't have to go there, but Paul keeps going up in all these trials, and it culminates in this big one with another Roman governor and King Herod. And Luke makes a point. There's all this pomp, all this power on display, and it's very clear we're going to intimidate this little guy, this weird little fellow that we don't understand. And Paul's so confident about his standing in Christ that as he begins to explain the gospel, the Roman governor goes, this man is mad. He's like, oh, he must be crazy. Because a person who stands before all this power and talks like this must be crazy. That's the only way, because anybody who's reasonable would know that we are powerful. And the king, King Herod, says, basically, are you seriously trying to convert me? They both are saying, how do we have no power over you? Well, Advent is why. Because we're in a new kingdom with a good king who outlasts all kingdoms. So I just end with this, as James Bryan Smith puts it. If this is true for you, you are the one in whom Christ dwells. You live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. Let's pray together. Father, the kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are we if we are in Christ. There is one security, there is one way, and it is you. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you did not leave us to all these ways we have tried time and time again. But you have come because you love us. May we see the witness of Paul. May we turn from Felix's way, which does not end well. May we turn to the true security offered in Christ. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this Christmas season that allows us to think on your reign. And in Jesus' name, amen.